Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. And when you find that, please stand with me to read God's Word. We are in part four of Living in the Last Days, this series, and we're looking at Jesus' words to his disciples regarding the events associated with his return. Now, some people say that, that the end times is not an important thing for Christians to focus upon. And I want you to think differently. I want you to think that it is very important for Christians to, to have a good grasp of because that will lead us to love Jesus more and long for His return and live in light of His return. Live for the glory of God, trusting the Holy Spirit and, and holding to the Word of God as he, until He comes again. Basically, I want you to have the highest view of the Lord Jesus Christ possible. We're going to read today Matthew chapter 24 verses 29 through 35. These are the words of Christ. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that your word will not pass away. We thank you for your presence with us, Lord, and we pray on this particular day, once again, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. We can't get into all the mechanics of the various end times views today, but I want you to know that we will do that in a special evening session of Grace Bible Institute on the 19th of this month. So you can see that in your bulletins, but we will go into greater detail. Jesus in Matthew 24, in these verses we just read, is speaking of His coming, His second coming, the coming of the Son of Man, how He put it. It's something that all Christians should look forward to. It is something that we, that we know is guaranteed to happen because God says it will. But navigating the details is very tough because what happens is, among, in end times views, there is so little agreement on the meaning among people who usually agree on the Bible. It's like politics. There's little agreement and plenty of debate. Now, when it comes to Matthew 24, a lot of people will read it and they're most interested in figuring out if it lines up with their particular school of thought regarding the end times regarding eschatology as is known there's no way around it 
Uh, we really need to just admit it, that this is a, a, as some people put it, a somewhat difficult topic to address. It is a very difficult topic to address. There's no way around it because we want to know what Jesus is getting at and different people understand Jesus and his words differently. Even within the Christian community that says the Bible is true, we're going to take the Bible from a historical, grammatical hermeneutic where we're going to say what does it say, what did it mean, to, and what did the original author's intent, what was it, and then how does it apply to our lives. But even in that context, there is very little agreement. Now last week we only got to verse 30. We looked at 29 and 30. So today we'll look at 31 through 35. Where we've been is Jesus talking about the coming of of himself, of the coming of the Son of Man. And in the larger context of Matthew 24, Jesus is speaking, I believe, about already and not yet aspects of the end times. Now, if you want, look with me, if you will, look with me at Matthew 24. And we've looked at these verses before, but verses 4 through 14 is distinctly about signs of the ends of the age. Verses 15 through 28 is distinctly about the destruction of Jerusalem. And then verses 29 through 31 is distinctly about Christ's second coming. And, and the reason he is, is saying these things is because his disciples had come to him with a three-part question. When will these things be, first of all? He had just predicted the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. But they also said, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And in this answer in this chapter, it's Jesus is basically correcting their faulty thinking. It seems as if they thought that that the destruction of Jerusalem and the second coming of Christ would all come in a bundle, all at one time. And Jesus is saying, here's how it's going to be. And so he, he answers in a little different order. But he speaks of signs of the end of the age, those beginning of birth pains. He speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And then he speaks of his coming. That's what we're at now. Why was Jesus doing this? The reason he was doing this is he wanted to comfort his disciples. He didn't want them to be discouraged or disheartened when when these tough things would come about. Basically, God is concerned with your emergency preparedness. A lot of people put together kits for emergency preparedness. And in California, we talk about the big one that might come and, and hit at any time. But here... Jesus is saying you need to be prepared so you won't be discouraged, that you won't be deceived, but that you will know the truth and cling to that truth. Now Jesus spoke these words on the Mount of Olives. It's called the Olivet Discourse. He is responding to his disciples' threefold question. Last week, in the verses we looked at, I I explained in greater detail the, the phrase, the Son of Man. That that's Jesus' favorite title for himself that is a title that he exclusively used, and he used it 78 times. It's a reference to his humanity and to his messianic title from Daniel 7, that on the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came and was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom. So Son of Man points to his being Messiah, the one promised to come and to suffer and to be exalted forever. A very important idea. But what we saw last week was four characteristics of Christ's return. This week, what we're going to do is see the last two, and then I'll make some comments about the significance of what is being said in those verses upon our lives today. 
But let's review really quickly. First of all, last week we saw that the coming of the Son of Man would be unsettling. Verse 29, he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, basically the lights are going to go out unmistakably. The sun will, will not shine. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. There's going to be crazy stuff happening. It will be very unsettling. It will also be unmistakable. Verse 30, there will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And it will be, that sign will be something that only those who see it know. Third, it will be understood, verse 30, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will mourn over their sinful rejection of Christ. And then fourth, we saw that it would be unquestioned. Verse 30 also says, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That his dominion is everlasting, that his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. His authority on that day will be unquestioned. That's where we've been. Now let's look at verse 31. We're going to see the fifth characteristic of the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 31 says, And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. What this signifies is that the coming of the Son of Man will be unforgettable. It will be something that everyone who sees it will never forget. There's plenty of things that we don't forget. A memorable occasion, certain moments, certain instances of life. But here, this is something that no one will ever forget, believer and unbeliever alike. The Bible tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even those who pierced him, even those who rejected him, at that day, the final the final moment and when christ comes back he is going to gather his elect but what that means is there will be a separation there will be a distinct unforgettable moment when everything will be separated and only the elect will be with him what does it mean to be the elect it's kind of an odd word for us to to talk about we usually think of elections right and voting. In fact, I heard one pastor once say, oh, here's the deal about election. You cast one vote, God casts one vote, and Satan casts another vote. In fact, yours is the deciding vote. Like, absolutely not. That is not what the Bible teaches. But elections are often impetus for conflict. Just think back into American history. The election of 1860, when Abraham Lincoln became president, the Civil War started almost immediately. Just yesterday in Karachi, Pakistan, people were killed when the Taliban attacked the the voting place uh, right before the elections that are supposed to be happening in several days. So there's a lot of of elections that that, uh, create conflict, but God's election of believers is totally different. It leads to peace. What does it mean to be elect? It means that you are chosen by God from before the foundation of the world to salvation that all those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ are the elect now let me tell you what the Bible does not teach about election the Bible does not teach that God brings people kicking and screaming into the kingdom against their will And the Bible does not teach that God has ever excluded anyone who wanted to believe in Jesus and be saved. 
Now you need to remember something about one of the basic teachings in Scripture about, about humanity. One of the basic teachings of Scripture is man is spiritually dead apart from Christ. Unable to do anything. The natural man does not want Christ. And he will only want Christ if God plants a desire for Christ in his heart. And once that desire is planted in the heart, those who come to Christ do not come kicking and screaming against their wills. They want to believe in Jesus. They want to come. They literally run to the Savior. There is a, there is a phrase that, that says that God's grace is irresistible. It's, it's irresistible grace, and a lot of people misunderstand that. But what does that mean? Uh, to the, the point of irresistible grace... What it means is that, that rebirth basically quickens someone to spiritual life in such a way that Jesus is now seen in all his irresistible glory and, and sweetness, really. Some of you can't resist chocolate. You, you eat it, and, 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 you, and when it's around, you just have to have it. Well, the irresistibleness of Jesus to those who have been made alive to the things of God is, is, is unparalleled. Every soul whose heart beats with the life of God within it longs for the living Christ. Here's what Jesus said. All whom the Father gives to me will come to me. John 6, 37. All whom the Father gives to Christ come to Christ. So no one comes kicking and screaming. No one comes against their will. And no one who is excluded who wants Jesus. Here's a definition of election. God's gracious choice of his people from eternity past, independent of his knowledge of anything we may do or not do. Jesus is going to have his elect gathered from the four winds, literally from north, south, east, and west, everywhere that the gospel has gone, that the gospel will have been preached throughout the whole world. And this, by the way, this event will be unforgettable to believer and unbeliever alike. Verse 32, Jesus says, you need to learn a lesson, and I want you to learn it from the fig tree. Now, some of us have fig trees, some of us don't, but I love the fact that Jesus used everyday things in that culture to make his points. Now, I, for one, have two fig trees in my yard. One is a withered fig tree. It's dead, and I'm not going to cut it down. It's going to remind me of the parable of the withered fig tree. The other fig tree is it's big, it's blooming, it gives plenty of fruit. And by the way, there's nothing better, nothing better than a fresh fig off your own fig tree. I mean, the ne- seriously, I mean, I love dried figs, but fresh figs are better. And, and Jesus says you need to learn the lesson from the fig tree. I love the fact that Jesus says you need to learn. That comes from the Greek word which means to be a disciple. It's the word monthano, it's it's. Be, be a disciple and learn from the fig tree. And then he says, learn the lesson. Now, the word for lesson is parable. Learn from the parable of the fig tree. And, and here's the parable. He says, as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. It's like obvious. You know, the, the tree looks barren. This happened in my backyard, by the way, like a month ago. It looked Barren, it looked dead, no leaves. And one day I come out there, there's green leaves on the fig tree. And now there's more leaves and little fruit things coming out. And guess what I said? 
Summer's almost here. It's almost summertime because, hey, look at my fig tree. Jesus says, that's how, verse 33, that's how you'll know when you see all these things I'm talking about that I am near. He says, just like the fig tree, when you see all these things, you know that I am near. He is near. Literally, he's talking about himself, the Son of Man. He is near at the very gate. The very gate. Go with me over to to James chapter 5. I love how James puts things. Here's Jesus' brother, who basically echoes many of Jesus' words. And, and many people think that the book of James is, a, is almost a restatement of the Sermon on the Mount. But here's what James says in, in James chapter 5 and verse 7. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And then he says, very practically, do not grumble against one another, brothers. He's saying, Christians, don't grumble. What do Christians do all the time? Grumble about other Christians. I'm going to venture to guess that someone sitting in this room, only third hour, not the other two, in this room, grumbled about someone else in this room sometime this week. You know how I know that? Because I did. Oh, wait, hold on. Let me, look, let me look around the room. Hold on, let me look. Okay. Now, I didn't grumble about you, but you know what? Um, <laughs> I did grumble about someone in this church this week. So I'm telling you, it happens. And, and James says... Don't grumble against each other. Because here's why. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Don't judge each other. Don't grumble each, against each other because the judge is standing at the door. And Jesus said, when you see all these things, you'll know that I'm standing at the door. I- I'm ready to come back. Verse, 20, verse 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Well, there's a doozy. A lot of people go, um, that's the generation that was alive back then. And then a lot of people say, no, 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 that's the generation that will be alive when, when Jesus comes back. So which one is it? Well, I think it hinges on what are the, these things. And it, it kind of hinges on what you're thinking this passage is really talking about. And again, uh, the, the people that agree on most everything in the Bible don't agree on this passage. And other, by the way, you can't really talk about Matthew 24 without also bringing the prophet Daniel into the, into the conversation and, and Revelation into the conversation and Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 into the conversation and 1 Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5 and also Second Peter. So there's, there's a lot of things that play into it, but let me tell you what I think on this. And by the way, a lot of people have been asking, you know, Mike, what do you think? And I have purposely not told you for the last three weeks what I... Actually, in seven years of being your pastor, I haven't told you what I think about the end times, except that Jesus is coming back, right? And so a lot of people have been asking, so you're probably going to hear what I think today. And I'll do that near the end, but I, 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 there's some reasons why I haven't, and I'll get to that. But here's what I think about this, this verse. I think that the, these things that happen is everything that Jesus said would happen between verse 4 and 28. Verses 4 to 28. Now, remember what he's talking about. The end of the age, the birth pains that are going to come upon them, the beginning of birth pains, but isn't the end yet. And he says, when the gospel's preached to the whole world, then the end will come. 
and also the fall of Jerusalem. Now, who do I think that this generation is? Now, again, I hold to a, a literal interpretation of the Bible and a grammatical, historical handling of the Scriptures. I believe that this, the generation he's talking about is the one that was alive when Jesus was speaking. And here's why. The generation alive when Jesus was speaking saw the fall of Jerusalem, and they also were in on the beginning of birth pains. So all those things happened that he said would happen in verses 4 through 28. And the only thing that hasn't happened is, ver- is what's in verses 29 to 31, the actual return of Jesus. Now, some of you are going to say, you know, I got stuff going on in my life here. Come on. You're talking about this stuff? I mean, please. I got really, you know, heart-wrenching situations going on in my life that's tearing me apart inside. And, and you're trying to get me to think about Jesus coming back and you're kind of deciphering all these things. What's the deal with that? Let me just say that if you're a believer in Jesus, you need to see what the end will be like to make sense of today. You need to have a hope for the end when you go through the tough times today. Now, if you're not a believer, all I can say is, and I don't know who is and who isn't, only God knows who belongs to him. All I could say is, if you're not a believer, all I want you to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And, and things will make sense after that. But, but I'll be, I'm speaking a different language if you're not a believer. You're not, you're not going to understand anything I'm saying. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Go there with me. 1 Thessalonians 4. Because again, you've got to look at some of these places. You know, by the way, as you're looking for that, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. He's talking about Christians. He's talking about a, a, a supernatural thing that God's going to do. He's talking about the fact that what we see here on earth is not all there is. 1 Thessalonians 4, here's what he says. I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers. Now remember, we're talking about a very unforgettable situation that is going to happen on earth and he doesn't want christians to not know just like jesus saying learn the lesson from the fig tree he says i don't want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep now it doesn't mean people sleeping in church or sleeping you know uh, you know it's happened it happens all the time I, I see it when it happens and you know what that's life isn't it i mean come on i i understand i do the same thing probably but here's the thing Here's the thing. Those asleep are those who are Christians who have died and Jesus hasn't come back yet. That makes it really clear as you go through this passage. Brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who have died believing in Christ before Christ returns. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Then he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now Paul says, comfort one another, encourage one another with these words. Use these words to give each other comfort and encouragement. Now again, when you talk about the end times, a lot of Christians will say, when's the rapture? That's all I need to know. When's the rapture? So I can make my plans, you know. And, and all I can tell you is the, the, 
The word rapture is not in the Bible. It is a Latin word that is referring to the Greek word be caught up. That's right here in verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4. So the idea is the church will get caught up to be with Jesus. That's what people call the rapture. But again, the rapture is not even, that, that word is not in the Bible. Now, go with um, me to, um, well, think with me for a moment about this. It's going to be an unforgettable day. An unforgettable occurrence. No one's going to need to be reminded what's going on. And, and I guess for Christians, I would say this. What, what we need to do is make sure we don't forget the Lord while we're living here. It's very easy to name the name of Christ and basically go about your day not thinking about Jesus Christ. Don't forget the Lord now. Don't forget the Lord who brought you out of the slavery of sin because he is coming again and you want to be prepared. Go with me to verse 35. I want you to see this sixth characteristic of the coming of the Son of Man. What will it be? Verse 35 says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. By the way, I love this assurance from Jesus about the end of all these predictions. It's unstoppable. That's what the coming of the Son of Man will be. That's the sixth characteristic. It, is, it will be unstoppable. It's like a runaway train in the best possible sense. Unstoppable, but a good thing. It's assured, by the way, more than death and taxes. It's going to happen. And here's why. Because Jesus is making this statement, which is probably the strongest statement in the, in the New Testament, about Jesus being God. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. The idea is, the idea is that Jesus is saying, I'm God. God's word stands forever. And that's the way it is. Now, right now, there are a lot of people who are either living or saying God's word doesn't matter. That it's a bunch of fables, it's a bunch of things. And here's an interesting thing. Just think about what Jesus was saying in this passage. What did he say would happen to Jerusalem? It would be destroyed. When was it destroyed? 70 AD. And by the way, if you've ever read the the Jewish historian Josephus, what you will see is there were... um, really almost unspeakable and unreadable atrocities happening during the destruction of Jerusalem. It was bad. It went all the way to cannibalism. People were, were, were doing horrible things. Here's the thing. Jesus, what he said would happen, happened. If you look through the prophecies in the Old Testament, you know how many things have come true. Jesus is saying, my word is sure. It's, it's going to happen. Now, people could say, well, no, it's not. But the question I would have is, who do you want to hedge your bets on? A human being or God himself? Well, go with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, and I want to read you something else. I want you to see something else here as well. By the way, as you're looking for that, let me just say, God himself says in Psalm 119, verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. He says in Isaiah 40, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. But look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Peter says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. Here's a guy who denied Christ three times. Here's a guy who was weak many times and impetuous, but a rock for the church, right? And he's, he's writing to them who are beloved in Christ. And he says this, both times I've written to you, I am stirring you up by way of reminder. I'm, I'm stirring up your sincere heart by way of reminder. 
It's good to be reminded of things that are, that are true and that are right. Here's what he says. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. You should remember what God said through the prophets and what Jesus said through the apostles, knowing that this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? By the way, back then, a lot of people even back then said, oh, Jesus already came, you missed it. And some of the writings were, look, you don't be, don't be uh, you know, moved off your composure here. He hasn't come yet. Here's how you'll know if he, when he comes. But they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Talking about the flood. Verse 7, but by the same word, the word of God, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And do not overlook this fact, he says, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And by the way, that verse has been twisted to say so many things over the years. Let me explain it. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. He's not slow to fulfill his promise of coming back, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Who did Peter write to? The elect, to believers. He is patient toward believers, not wishing that any believers, any of the elect, should perish, but that all believers, all the elect, would come to repentance before Christ comes back. And that is assured by God's word to happen. And then it says this, but by the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And for those who think that the end times are not practical, listen to these next words. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be to live lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So, so Peter, the Holy Spirit through Peter is saying, you need to live godly lives because Jesus is coming back. This is an unstoppable train. This is an unstoppable situation. Now last week I asked the question, so what's, what, what the, why, why the big deal about all this? Why should you be so interested? And, I, and by the way, by third hour last week, I was able to, to, get, my, to get my thoughts in order. And so what you, what you got last week was, was, what I, was, was what I only said to you. <laughs> and here's what I said. Number one, you should be really in, 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 encouraged and, and aware of these things for the sake of unity in the body of Christ. Don't cause divisions among believers for any reason. And especially in the end times, foster unity. And number two, I said it was for the sake of ministry. 
That we ought to keep doing what God calls us to do everywhere we're supposed to do in light of Christ's return so that sharing your faith in evangelism and helping other Christians grow in discipleship ought to be at the forefront of what we're about. And the third thing I said was that it was most of all about hope. The hope that the Bible says is like an anchor for our souls. It holds us firm when when the storms come and when, when life gets really tough. But we live in light of future realities all the time and it calls for endurance. The Bible says rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. And the Bible says that hope that is seen is not hope. But we are to look for the blessed hope and appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now today what I want to do is to to bring up just two things about this passage that we've looked at that I think bear special note. One is about the elect and the other is about the word of God. First of all, just briefly about the elect. The Bible here says that God's elect will be gathered. Be gathered. What that makes me do, first of all, knowing, knowing Jesus and knowing that I'm safe and secure in him, it, it makes me love Jesus so much. And it makes me want to revel in Christ in my heart and live with gusto for him until he comes or he takes me to be with him, whichever comes first. And, and I think that, that the idea of, of living with all your heart for Christ right now is, is, is stimulated by the knowledge that God is the one who chooses us and then keeps us for eternity. And that is a huge, huge truth that God wants us to, to latch on to because he wants us to have the highest view of Jesus Christ. And to love him supremely. Now about God's word. Let me say a few things there. God's word endures. And it will not pass away. That was what was clear in this passage. And all th- the last three weeks. I have been, I've been saying that there are things. That every Christian should believe. When it comes to the end times. And that they are clear in scripture. But first and foremost. That Jesus will return. And that there will be an abomination of desolation, as Jesus talked about, and a tribulation will happen, and unbelievers will be judged, and believers will be blessed. Satan will be judged, and we will live in a new heaven and a new earth. But I know that some of you have wondered what I think, and and personally, I don't think what I think is that important to the discussion, but I know a lot have asked. And I I will just say this, um, I would wonder too, if, if I was listening to someone up here preaching about these things and wondering, well, where do you exactly stand? Because it does affect the way you handle these passages. Now, you know I've kept my cards close and, and it was intentional. And let me just tell you some of the reasons and then I'll give you some of my views. But I want you to know something. My views are not essential for salvation, for someone's salvation. Um, our church has a, a stated position. Uh, it's a premillennial, pre-tribulational rapture, a dispensational uh, position. And, and that's clearly stated. I've served, I served at a church 15 years before that who, that didn't have a stated position like that. Just said, we know that Jesus is coming back visibly and bodily and soon. And that we're not going to cause divisions in the body amongst us. We are going to, if we teach on it, we'll, we'll say sincere and intelligent Christians differ on some of these things. And, and so if someone comes to Grace Church and has a different view, let's say you want to join the church, you know, and you say, well, you know, I have a different end times view. We're going to say, well, do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe in the Lord? Have you been saved? Then, then welcome to the fellowship. We're not going to make a big deal about that. Even amongst our elders, we're not having all the same exact opinion of these things because it is so unclear at times. 
With that in mind, I will say this. Um, the reasons I haven't shared, because after almost 30 years of, of reading the, the Bible and being a Christian, and I'm 50 now, I still am formulated my opinions. So I lean towards certain views. And in part to respect our church's stated doctrinal teaching, which is a premillennial, pre-tribulational rapture of the church, and, and, and a lot in part for the sake of unity, because I don't want people going, well, you know, Pastor Mike believes this, and so-and-so believes that, and kind of making it something. So that's some of the reasons I haven't done that. The other thing I want to tell you is that thinking about the end times a lot has taken me back to when I first became a believer. The first three years of, of, of reading the Bible, where I just came to conclusions based upon a straight reading of the text of Scripture without someone telling me, here's what it means. And so... I want to give you first the best biblical end times view that you should hold to, okay? You might want to write this down. I'm going to give you the best biblical end times view, right? Don't look so happy. Here we go. The best biblical end times view for you to hold personally, I know what it is. It's the one that leads you to love Jesus Christ the most and long for his return intently and to live this life in light of his return and for his glory, trusting the Holy Spirit with the, and having the word of God very close. That's the, be- the best biblical end times view for you to hold is the one that leads you to love Jesus more. Now, I will say this too. Our generation is very, very wired to, to think dispensationally. And the reason why is, some of you might remember, some of you are old enough to remember in the 1970s, Hal Lindsey had a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. It was the top-selling book in the 70s. It was all about a premillennial, pre-tribulational rapture of the church. Now, uh, probably everyone has heard more recently of Tim LaHaye and uh, Jerry B. Jenkins' wildly popular Left Behind series. You don't know how many people I say, well, you mean the rapture won't be just like in the Left Behind books? I'm like, it will be just like the Bible. And, and here's the thing. I think there's a, uh, these views have informed a lot of people. 50 million units of left-behind paraphernalia has been sold. So we are greatly informed our views by these things. But I think there's been a lot of people who have read those things and haven't checked their Bibles. Now, I'm not saying that those views are, abs- are, are necessarily wrong. I'm just saying, wouldn't it be great if they're talking about the Bible to go check your Bible and see if that lines up? Okay. So here's a couple of my views and um, you know again take them and leave them because I don't really I'm not trying to get anyone to, view, to take my view the more I study this the more convinced I am of my view and the more lightly I hold it like it, it's, it's not going to make the biggest difference in the, way I, in the way I live and it won't make an eternal difference in, in terms of uh, God's going to show it God's going to show the truth right so here's a couple of the things I think what I understand the Bible to be teaching using a grammatical historical hermeneutic and a way of interpreting Bible prophecy in what I consider the most literal way, okay? Um, I believe that the Old Testament prophecies are seen in light of the New Testament interpretation of those prophecies. I also um, believe that the Old Testament images and types are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I hold to what is called the analogy of faith, which means that important end times teachings that are unclear are made clear by more clear teachings on the end times. So rather than taking, let's say, the literal sense in isolation from the other scriptures, 
Scripture relating to the last things is seen in light of other biblical passages about the last things. Especially when it comes to New Testament uh, teachings that shows how the Old Testament pointed to Christ and is fulfilled in Him. So I believe in a uh, more, I lean towards a present millennial age with Jesus Christ reigning in heaven. What is known as realized millennialism or amillennialism. Now, that is not the premillennial pre-tribulational rapture view that so many hold to, but I lean more towards that view than to others. I also believe that the promises made to Israel and David and Abraham in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I have a very high view of Israel, and, but I believe that they are fulfilled in Jesus and his church because his church is comprised of all those who believe, Jew and Gentile alike. Uh, what else can I say? I think that all of ethnic Israel who come to faith in Jesus Christ are a part of the church. There's other things that, that can be pointed out, but I think that's probably enough for now. I want to say one more thing, though, regarding the Word of God, regarding our handling of the Word of God. And let me just say this. The Bible unlived is the Bible ignored. If you say, hey, I'm a, I'm a believer, and I believe the Bible and my hope is, is, is really spelled out in that, but you don't live it, you're ignoring it. Okay, that's pretty clear. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, thoroughly equipped for every good work. But let me say this, and, and I think every believer's heart should grieve over what what we are experiencing in our society right now. Now, I think people in every time should have been able to say that. But my heart has been grieved over and over again recently as I have seen um, Bible-believing Christians not able and not tolerated to speak a word about what the Bible says about a current topic. For example, we, there is a, a Christian brother uh, who works for ESPN, Chris Broussard. And he came out recently and said, I do not believe that homosexuality is compatible with Christianity. I believe it is a sin because God calls it a sin. If you want to talk about being practical, let's talk about being practical. Here is this man who is stating his opinion. He is, his, the response to him right now is nothing short than complete hatred. Now, the person that that, um, that uh, made the statement about saying I'm a homosexual and I'm, and I'm also a Christian got a call from the President of the United States congratulating him. Got, got tweets from Kobe and all these people. So, but one man, one Christian man standing up and saying, this is what I believe the Bible says, can't be dealt with. Can't, can't, be, can't be allowed to have his opinion. And so he must be silenced. They're calling for him to be fired and all sorts of things. And all I can say is if you go, oh, you know, that's just an isolated instance. You know, that's not really going to happen to Christians. It's, it's just one of those things. Just do this. In the place that you operate on a daily basis, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, stand up lovingly and respectfully for what the Bible says as it relates to things that come your way. And I guarantee you, you will feel the heat. 
See, up against Jesus' words in Matthew 24, 35, my words will never pass away, is a one-sided culture war being forced on us. There is intense pressure to cave and to accept as right what we know is wrong. And we're not, we don't want to be hateful. We don't want to be um, unaccepting or anything. We want to love people but cling to biblical truth. And biblical truth is not allowed in many places in the public square. Bible-believing Christians who seek to be loving to all people are considered what I call caveman freaks for holding to God's word without twisting it to condone sin. This is the world we live in. And if you have not braced yourself for that reality, you are not living in reality. I want you to live in reality. I want you to live with the highest view of Jesus Christ, but I want you to be prepared for what Jesus says is going to happen. If we haven't braced ourselves for this reality, then we're already close to being pulled over the proverbial tug-of-war line. You know when you play tug-of-war? You know what the worst feeling in the world is? When your team starts sliding towards the center line, and, and it's like you know it's happening and there's nothing you can do about it. But Christians have a different view because of what this passage says about the Word of God. See, so, you know, like playing, you're playing tug-of-war and your team is, is getting pulled over the line. But then some, some big guy comes up and joins your team and starts pulling the other team across the line. Who might that be for Christians? Who might that be? The Lord Jesus Christ praying for us. The Lord Jesus Christ standing with us. The Lord Jesus Christ who will come again in power and great glory for his own. Pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for your goodness to us and your truth that transforms our lives. Lord, we can be called liars by the whole world and if we have your approval, that's all we need. Lord, we, I pray for those who are having intense pressure put upon them by others to conform to the world. I even pray for Christians that are putting intense pressure on themselves to conform to the world. And Lord, we pray for so-called Christians who are mocking God that they, would, that they would see the error of their ways before it's too late. Lord, we know that you will not be mocked. Our heart's desire is that we would live rightly with you that we would live in a lifestyle and choices that are pleasing to you. Lord, that we would be loving you and loving other people and longing for your return as we live this life. Cautious as you say we ought to be and courageous as you say we ought to be. And we commit ourselves to you. In Christ's name, amen.